thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. On the 16th of June 2015, an American predator, that's an unmanned drone, located al-Qaeda's leader in Yemen, Nasser al-Wahishi, the alias for Abu Basir, who was traveling in a car. It then switched on his mobile phone using satellite technology, and as soon as the phone came on, the operator, who was 7,000 miles away in the Nevada desert, pressed a button, and it vaporized the car with two Hellfire missiles. The thought of armed drones up in the sky is disturbing enough, but the idea of robot soldiers on the battlefield feels more like some sort of dystopian science fiction. Not so, apparently. Here's Noel Sharkey, an artificial intelligence expert, speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Robots and Artificial Intelligence. Mainly, what they're doing useful work in bomb disposal, so what you call IED, which is improvised explosive devices. So they drive them around and they look for explosive devices. They've got cameras on them and they're remote controlled mainly. And when they find one, then they use the robot to detonate or something like that. Um, but it's quite, there's some quite funny stories coming out because the soldiers are treating these like real beings, even though they're remote controlling them. Um, there's, a, there's a droid hospital, it's called, where the soldiers take the robots to have them fixed. And soldiers actually want the same robot back, even though they're offered a new model of exactly the same robot. And there are lots of stories of soldiers taking the robots fishing on their day off. So they're sitting in a boat and they put the fishing rod in the robot's claw hand. So they become very attached to them. That all sounds very jolly, but the implications of using robots and bionic soldiers in war are clearly profound and, in reality, terrifying. With me to discuss them are Dr. Ben Wilkinson, 
Director of Research at the Policy Institute in King's College London, and an expert in defense and security who's just written a book on terrorism as a failed strategy. Alongside him, metaphorically, of course, is Professor Paul Cornish, visiting professor at LSE Ideas, who previously served in the British Army and whose recent publication is rather ominously called The Disintegrating Language of UK Defence. To what extent is there a degree of secrecy surrounding the use of robots and drones in the military? Paul? Thanks, Ed. Well, if I may, I just want to pick up something that I heard um, Noel Sharkey say in that in that excellent piece when he was talking about droid hospitals and soldiers taking their robots fishing. I dare say that does happen, but I wouldn't want to read too much into it. It looks to me as if Professor Sharkey might have come across what used to be called squaddy humour. I mean, soldiers do do these sorts of things, but they don't really mean it. It's probably more for taking a selfie than anything else. And the point, serious point I want to make is that the attachment, and he's right, there are attachments to these things, but the the attachments, I think, are partly out of superstition. You know, you want a bit of luck from the machine that you're involved with, but it's also mainly, in my view, and in my experience of these things, it's a sort of professional thoroughness. When you issue a soldier with a rifle, for example, that rifle becomes not just his rifle, but his personal weapon. And the military use the term personal. And so there's a lot of professional maintenance of the weapon and a lot of attachment to it in that sense. As to the degree of secrecy, well, I think there's no surprise that there's some secrecy. But I think there's been a very, very broad, a very vigorous debate about the use of new technology, including robotic and unmanned aerial. If you ask the American military, the Air Force is what they're flying. They never tell you they're flying drones. They hate the term. They prefer to use unmanned aerial vehicles because that gives them a chance to use another acronym, the UAV. So I think there's a fairly broad and open discussion about the fact that they exist, they're being developed and used. That's not least why we're having this discussion here. We'd also expect there to be a lot of what's called OPSEC, operational security about the detail of why and when they're being used. And then we should also expect, and indeed there is, a great deal of legal oversight. The use of any weapon system is and should be subject to what are called ROE, rules of engagement, and these are very closely supervised and should be by military lawyers. Well, let's drill down into the ethics of it. What are the ethics of using these artificial intelligence components in warfare? Ben? Well, I think they're really complicated, and and there's a there's a probably a spectrum from you know a, a soldier on the battlefield making a decision to fire a weapon, all the way through in the middle ground to an example you had in the intro of a soldier seven thousand miles away making a decision to fire a weapon with reasonable confidence to firing a weapon into you know the atmosphere that can then make decisions about what to target itself, all the way through to a weapon that decides that something is a target purely by itself. In this spectrum, there is a kind of, you know, one end of the scale, the ethics of war are long debated, but, it, you know, it's a long-standing discussion. It, it's when the human gets increasingly removed from it that that's when the ethics come into play. And there's, there's a really good example of when this gets problematic, which is, you know, you can imagine a, a soldier in a battlefield doing something courageous and full of valour and getting a medal for it. And at what point does your drone operator in Nevada do something that is so courageous and valorous that they get a medal? And where do you pin the medal? And if something is completely autonomous, where do you pin the medal then? Do you put it on your you know, self-guiding drone? Do you put it on the company who created the AI tech for it? You know, where is it? And so all of this leads you to the point of where is the agency? Where do you hold responsibility? And where, where, where is accountability and oversight? And that is kind of at the core of the ethical debate. I completely agree that this, in a sense, reduces to a discussion about agency, um, which is the hook on which we hang the entire ethical discussion, I think. As Ben said, you know, we need to ask who is acting, under what authority, and most importantly, who or what perhaps is responsible for the consequences of the action. 
you need to ask those questions in order then to have the ethical debate. And as in all new technology, all innovation, all of this boils down to what's known in uh, sort of cyber circles as the problem of control. But more broadly, I don't feel terrified by innovation. I'm not panicked by you know some of the science fiction allusions to what's going on and so on. What worries me more is the pace of our debate, really, and the breadth of our debate. These technological evolutions seem to be happening at such a pace, but our ethical oversight and debate and so on seems to be so glacially slow, not least because it's a very difficult topic. But I, I think we need to be worried much more about the extent and the quality of our supervision rather than the technology, really. We can get on top of this technology if we really want to and take the necessary steps. Well, this is exactly what we want to get to on Naked Reflections. We want to explore this question of agency, this question of supervision, almost creating the criteria. What are the criteria? You may say that it's got to be tailored to the particular context or the particular incident, but just help us understand what are the key criteria to supervise this sort of warfare. What's key in all of this is to understand the context in which, in a sense, we're trying to be ethical. And we are talking about human beings in extremists in extremes of fear and tiredness and shock and horror and so on and so forth. And this has always been the challenge of military ethics, of the ethics of the use of armed force, trying to work out how you can inject human morality into those most difficult of circumstances. So I think we need, in a way, to... It's partly tailoring it to the to the context, to the circumstances of conflict and so on, but it's also understanding that the task is massive. It's massive, but it is not insoluble. You know, on the face of it, it looks completely ridiculous that someone can come along and say, in the midst of war, you should also be kind to your injured opponents. Well, where does that come from? It's come from the exercise of morality. And I think, therefore, we know that we can do this. I haven't really come up with any, any distinct criteria. I'm just sort of repeating myself, Ed. But, but that's my, my kind of approach to this. I don't know if Ben would have a different view. So I think that's exactly right. I mean, there are bits of the ethical debate that I think, you know, will will manifest themselves in some form of governance at, at some point. And I guess one of the core elements of those is over cert- what I call certainty. And, and that has two aspects. So one is the certainty that the systems that you create are going to behave in the way that you want them to. This plays into that wider debate about, you know, robots on the battlefield going bonkers or, you know, or, or losing control or us losing control of them. So to what extent can you be certain of that? You know, really good example we've we've seen with computers back in Millennium Bug. You know, everyone said, "Well, it's going to be a bug or not," and there was no certainty and therefore no control. And so, without certainty, you don't have control over these systems, and therefore you've got no real oversight. And the second aspect of the certainty is the certainty that although the system might act in the way that you wanted to, that you're going to use it in the way that you said you're going to. And I think that's a really important part of it. This is the you know the wider sort of application of military ethics, I guess, to the use of autonomous systems. There are all these sort of reports, you know, how accurate they are. I'm, I'm never entirely certain about, you know, genomics and, you know, breeding human soldiers that, you know, that have extra things attached to them. And all of this is, is kind of a bit of the same debate, which is how, how certain are we are that they're going to be used in the right way by a state under the rules of war or not. And I think that's the second part of it that kind of gets left out of the discussion at times. I think that's really useful, Ben. I, I use a slightly different term. I prefer to call it a question of trust. And this, to me, is the is the device which enables or should enable us to interrogate what all these new technologies do, are doing for us. We need to be able to trust what our inventions are doing for us, just as we put a, a soldier, a sailor, or a man, a woman in a certain position in extremists. We uh, we have to trust that they will behave according to our legal and moral norms, and so we have to be able to exercise those sorts of tests on the machines that we invent to do these things. 
So we've talked about trust, agency and supervision. I, I'm wondering in the arena itself on, on the battlefield and, and you as a former soldier, Paul, if you could comment on this, to what extent is there a feeling of being threatened by these developments as a soldier or to what extent are they deemed a real resource because they protect you? I'd say both, annoyingly for you, I'm afraid. Military people have always been used to hearing about and coming across the latest development, technological development in weaponry or platforms, as they're called, or whatever. And they've always understood that part of their job is to work out how to respond and defeat the innovation that the other side has deployed. We've even developed in the UK and elsewhere ways of, of, of describing this process, the action reaction cycle. And there have been some military thinkers who have dwelt upon this. They're used to it. They understand it happens. But they also see that it can generate huge opportunities for them. In that moment of superiority, you know, if you're lucky enough to have invented and to deploy the latest innovation, then that does give you an advantage. But you fully expect that your adversary will do the same back to you fairly soon by either inventing some new style of armor that can defeat the bullet that you just made or whatever else. And so on it goes. It's an endless cycle, really. That's the way it's seen. An endless cycle, Ben? One of the things we're beginning to see in this domain, which we saw in, in cyber, you know, which is very closely linked, but is slightly distinct because it, it has its own kind of battlefield, which we saw about 10, 15 years ago and is continuing. There is a building kind of arms race in this space around auto- automation, autonomous systems, lethal autonomous weapon systems. Countries are aware that other countries are accelerating in this space and they're trying to keep up because you know this is going back to the point that Paul was making about trust because you don't quite know what the other side is up to you tend to go quicker than you think you 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 might want to if you knew exactly what they're doing and then so does the other side and you get this escalating race and I think in this space that is beginning to kind of really take off and you're seeing this sort of proliferation of you know UAVs on the one hand but increasingly autonomous weapon systems Uh, And they're beginning to be used as well. I mean, we saw in Nagorno-Karabakh that there were loitering drones being used and things like this. And in case they don't know what those are, those are drones that you fire into the battlefield and they'll fly over it for a few hours. You give them a a range of targets you want them to try and find. And once they've found it, they will decide to hit it. It's kind of one of the major uses of an autonomous system in a battlefield. And it happened just at the end of last year. The more they get used and the more other sides see they're being used, everyone is going to continue to escalate. So I I think, you know, as I said earlier, we're at the very beginning of the ethical debate, but we're also, I think, at the beginning of the technological race on it as well. Yeah, I think there's a lot in that. And, you know, it does take us back to the days of the Cold War and arms racing. And But then we worked out how to deal with arms racing, you know, arms race stability and so on. You you have negotiations and you stabilise and so on. And there's lots going on, as Ben says. You know, I, I even came across something talking about the development of what was known as the artificial intelligence gap. And this was an explicit evocation of the missile gap thinking in the early Cold War years. So here we are, we're kind of going around it again. So we've got to be very, very wary here. And just as we had problems in the past, we need to also tell ourselves that we worked out how to deal with them in the past. The big difference, it seems to me, this time around, is that so much of this technology is not controlled by governments and by militaries. It's controlled and it's developed in and used by the commercial sector. So this is a massive complication, which in a sense makes the arms race that Ben very accurately referred to, even more complicated than it was last time. Paul, I think you're absolutely right. The only thing I'd add to that is I just wonder whether we've forgotten how to do those negotiations that we used to be very good at in the heyday of the Cold War. The negotiations smothering these races and putting, you know, damping down these fires. It feels that we may well have forgotten how to do that in the last 30, 40 years. And as you say, there's now an extra player, which is the corporate sector, 
producing these things in, in the market and how you negotiate across those multinationals as well as with other governments is going to be a crucial bit, I think. To make an obvious point, it, it does create a problem for us because commercially developed technology in communications and in, 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 in whatever, uh, in data surveillance and so on and so forth, you know, we all use Amazon, I guess, and, and our data are all being used all the time. So the commercial development of things like AI are also therefore more openly available to possible, if you like, misusers. So whereas in the, I don't want to idealize it by any means, but whereas in the, in the Cold War style military approach, governmental and military approach, you could at least hope for some sort of ethical and legal supervision of developments. Now, I'm not naive enough to say that happened all the time. Nevertheless, you could at least hope and expect to achieve something like that. It seems to me to be very, very much more difficult to do the same thing now. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Ben Wilkinson and Paul Cornish. And we're discussing the contentious topic of bionic soldiers. Surprisingly, perhaps, the word robot was not coined until 1921. But society has been trying to enhance the powers of soldiers who fight for them as long as there have been wars. Here's Barbara Sahakian speaking on the Naked Euroscience podcast, A Wired Society. Well, of course, the military has been using um, stimulant drugs for some time, the amphetamines and Ritalin. There may be certain groups of the population where you would want them to use drugs to keep themselves safe and perhaps their colleagues, and the military may be uh, one of these groups. According to Professor Sahakian, enhancement techniques such as stimulants have been used in the military for a long time. But recently, the armed forces of France and China have been given official permission to, and I quote, augment their soldiers. Where is the line in interventions like this? It's a really complicated area, isn't it? The French have agreed to this kind of augmentation. But if you look at the actual text of it, they've been quite cautious. And they're very clear that you can't augment any human being in a way that would mean they could never leave the military. So for instance, if you were to put a bionic arm on someone, it can't have a permanent weapon attached to it, because then they can never leave the military and you take away the individual's free will. You know, they're also perfectly clear that they're going to abide by all of the international conventions. You know, that said, what does augmentation mean then? And I guess it comes in two or three forms. So the first is, can you put kit on an individual that enhances their survivability in a, in a conflict or enhances their combat effectiveness? And the answer to that is yes, and we do it already, right? So we've got you know body armor and all of these things. I mean, there have been a very famous US trial of the so-called Iron Man suit, which is now defunct, but it was a very famous trial. And there, there are other exoskeletons and all of this stuff which are being built at the moment. The second is, can you give people drugs or other alterations that enhance either their speed of thought, their ability to stay awake, their performance on the battlefield and all of these things? And Professor Sackin's right. This has been going on for ages, um, you know, since at least the First World War. When, you know, even British troops were routinely given cocaine to keep going. The use of amphetamines was very widespread in the German army and in the British army, too, in the Second World War. And there's quite a lot of stuff written about that. And, and I guess medical interventions on soldiers is, is also pretty long standing. The third, I think, is probably the grey area, which is the kind of machine human interface and how you might plug that in. This is where you get things like people discussing whether you could replace somebody's eye with something that was more bionic, better at seeing, use of infrared, and, and so on. And I guess that this is probably where you run into the, the, into the area that no one's really thought about, which is where you start putting machine elements into humans. You know, there's probably a protective element to that, where you able a soldier to be the better version, but uh, it's not all about lethality. And there's probably a nastier version, which is where it is all about the, the lethal force that a soldier can apply and how you might deliver that. 
But the problem with the, the enhancing these things for soldiers is that you end up with a battlefield in which you've got either enhanced soldiers on it on the one hand or autonomous drones on the other. And one of the things that's very difficult to get one's head around is any chance of, if you had a conflict, of any chance of beating the opposition simply by killing all of their drones. It, it sounds very strange, but you're not going to, you know, you're not really going to win. You might de- deprive them of some of their material, but you're not going to actually to win the conflict. So to a degree, soldiers will always have to be there. And you can sort of see a slightly apocalyptic future, if you like, where uh, you have to have both. The idea that you, you have unmanned drones is to remove the soldiers from the battlefield. And in practice, you've got unmanned drones fighting with, with robots. You know, I think the point about international control of it is correct. Is the question is how, really, and making sure that all countries are going to sign up to the same set of norms. That's the bit that I uh, worry a bit more about. And if you have a look at cyberspace, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we might well have been saying exactly the same thing. And I think that we're definitely seeing a manipulation of cyberspace in, in ways that contravene international norms at the moment. You know, I guess if this area goes the same way, you might end up in the same place. So I hope I'm getting the impression I'm complacent about it. I, I'm certainly not, but I'm I'm less worried about these sort of developments than I am about the, the larger scale developments. For example, I think I'm probably more concerned about the development of artificial intelligence led largely in the in the commercial sector and with armed forces around the world simply taking it on as, I don't know, some sort of the latest bit of military technology or force multiplier or whatever. I was very struck when I read Toby Ord's excellent book, um, Precipice. There was one line in it where he warned, there are serious concerns about AI, artificial intelligence, entrenching social discrimination, producing mass unemployment, supporting oppressive surveillance, and violating the norms of war. And so, again, it goes back to the point I said about trust and about forming a relationship, an expectation between you, the inventor or the user or whatever else, and the and the machine that you're developing. And it also goes back to the point about Elon Musk of the Tesla car coming in and deciding that on his own terms that he wanted to fuse machine and biological intelligence. These are the sorts of things that really, I think, if anything worries me, it's in that sector. The idea that machine intelligence can just be allowed to run away with itself because someone decided it was a good thing some time ago. And we end up without really knowing who's deciding on what basis to do this or that for whatever reason. Are there any examples in the recent or further in the past that you can turn to that can help us here? There are plenty of examples which cause concern. When you were talking about escalation, Ben, I was thinking of the conversation you had in a previous episode with Margaret Macmillan talking about the escalation that led to war. But are there examples that you can turn to that will help us? The huge amount of effort that went into trying to control the speed and growth of arms during the nuclear arms race in the Cold War, you know, that has real lessons for now. And that said, the only thing I would would add into it, in the Cold War, it felt a little bit more that it was about one or two technologies. And now my only concern is that it's, it's not just about automation. It's not just about drones. It's not just about robots. It's not just about cyber. It's also about you know, miniaturization. It's also about quantum computing. It's also about sensors. You know, all of these are different are different areas, which are huge growth areas for, for both military and for corporates. You know, anyone who wears an Apple watch at the moment, I have one here, you know, this will do an ECG. It's got a, a sensor on the back of it that allows you to do an ECG as you walk along. And, you know, it's not just about automation. It's not just about these. It's happening in all of these different lines. And it's where you get crossovers between them that, you know, there are real worries as well. So I, I just wonder if we're fighting on a few more fronts than we were during the Cold War in terms of negotiating. I think there are some lessons from the past that should give us a bit of hope. And again, we've touched on a few of them. But I was struck, as we were talking then, about the history of the what was known as the Enhanced Radiation Warhead, 
during the 1980s, otherwise known as the neutron bomb. You might remember some of it, some of the story around it. This was a device that would be exploded above military forces and it would kill the occupants of vehicles. It would kill human beings, soldiers, but it wouldn't destroy uh, cities and so on and so forth. It was effectively banned, I think, of all sorts, for two reasons. There was a, a sense of moral revulsion to inventing a, a machine. I mean, in a sense, if you look back on it, quite odd in many ways. Here was a weapon that would kill people. Well, surprise, surprise. It was partly that, that we didn't want to invent something that could do something as wicked as just killing people. But it was also, I think, the main reason for uh, doing away with it was that it was yet another military advantage that was brought in to one side rather than the other, and it would therefore be destabilizing. This would be my point. We need to understand that some of these things come in and they pose all sorts of complicated ethical challenges to us about supervision and trust and so on and so forth, but they also could have a destabilizing effect. So we need a kind of a more general, I suppose, I won't militarize the whole debate, but we do need some sense that these things developed outside in the commercial sector could have a destabilizing effect, which is which is not what we want. And I was thinking as well that in the cyber world, you know, there have been some steady agreements about agreeing not to hack back and not to, to disrupt your adversary's communications entirely. Uh, for example, so, you know, you've got to make sure that they can still carry on talking to each other to, so that they all decide to wind back and calm down, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm trivializing it, but you get my point. One of the things I, I sort of vaguely worry about and wonder about, and Ed will, as a theologian, will be far more compelling on this than I am, but I, d- I wonder if morality has moved on a bit. I mean, during the Cold War, there was this sort of norm that we would try to create a stable, peaceful system. Do you think that still applies? That's a genuinely open question. I think it has to. We really do need to pay a great deal of attention to the ethical edifice, if you like, that we've constructed over several centuries. And we need not just to assume that it will work. We need to work jolly hard to make sure that it does. But the precepts, and here I'll, I'll give way to Ed, you know, the precepts behind it all, and I'm going back to my own brief encounter with theology at St. Andrews many years ago, it seems to me that the precepts behind it are just as valid now as they ever were, wherever they come from, whether they come from the Judeo-Christian approach or, or from somewhere else. They're all kind of pretty common in their substance. So I think they're still there, but we just need to work very hard to apply them rather than just assume that they work. I think Ed's done a sterling job here. He's brought two people who know about defence and security on. We've talked about defence and security, and then we've given the moral problem to Ed to solve, which is perfect for a podcast, I think. Well, thanks, Ben, and we're drawing it to a close. No, I think the um, the only point I'd add is that we recognise intellectually that we're interdependent. We talk about that a lot in lots of different fields, but the human condition is not one that allows that. So we have become more insular. There's no doubt the difference between the 1980s and 1990s in terms of society and in terms of not just religion and belief, but in terms of social relations is that we've become more about I rather than about we. So I think theologically or philosophically, I would like to add that into any debate about supervision and agency. The fact is that we are so interconnected and interdependent that we continue going down a path. It can only lead to destruction. And what a terrible way to end this episode of Naked Reflections, but I hope it gives all of us food for thought. Thanks to my guests, Ben Wilkinson and Paul Cornish. We'd love to hear from you at Naked Reflections. You can contact us at the Wolf Institute by email or on Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show. Give us a rating. We've covered a wide range of subjects, which you can find by delving into our back catalogue. And it's worth checking out our new podcast, The A to Z of the Holy Lads from Arab to Zion. All you need to know about Israel, Palestine in bite-sized chunks.
You can also find the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.